Well, welcome. This is uh, The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and uh, The Professor, of course, Peter Van Onselen. Joins G'day, us. I've, had the, I've had the greatest time, Peter. I can't believe this, but I had to shift some stuff out of my room and I dragged out an old suit. And in the pocket of my suit, I found $60 billion. It's just been fantastic. <laughs> I've been going it's funny crazy. how that can happen. I mean, I, can there's, happen. A bit of that, there's a bit of that going around. Uh, the, the government have done well, though, haven't they? They've, the, the biggest accounting error in Australian history, uh, they're now selling as a good thing because they've saved the budget $60 billion, even though what they were originally selling for the $130 billion was that, look, that's the cap. You know, we can't go any further than that. Uh, if we had more, sure, maybe we could look at expanding JobKeeper. But now that they do have more, $60 billion more on their original cap, they won't go further. They're, they're now telling us that that's not to be done. They can't do that. And the PM's running around saying that he's saved the budget $60 billion. The Treasurer is getting text messages, apparently, from colleagues congratulating him on the speed of saving $60 billion. You can't write this stuff. No. I mean, I do remember way back when there was a, a, a Labor stuff-up where there was a double counting. I th- I've got a vague feeling it was Ralph Willis was the Treasurer at the time and labor got punished and beaten. I think it was in the last days of the Keating government. And uh, again, it was a, it was just a, an adding up, but dwarfed by what we're seeing now. Uh, it is remarkable how um, it, it ended any last hopes. There might've been of a Keating election, I think back in uh, 1996 election victory, but, um, well, the, but, but the line that one. I want, the line that I want to read to you is what Michael Suka the assistant treasurer said on Melbourne radio, I believe less than a week before this $60 billion error was revealed. Keeping in mind that the error means that instead of it being over 6 million workers getting access to JobKeeper, it's actually been just over 3 million. So keep all of that in mind and listen to this. If you haven't heard this, this is without doubt, in my view, one of the most Uh, interesting quotes in the context of how things change. Here's what he said on Melbourne Radio. We've hit the milestones that we thought we would have. As you know, 6 million employees converted. Now, you and I would perhaps be having a very different conversation if today you said to me, Michael, there's only 3 million employees who are covered. It was half what we expected. In that case, I'd be saying to you, yeah, look, there's more of a likelihood of wholesale changes. So that's what he was saying before what happened happened. And then without a hint of shame or embarrassment, Michael Suka was literally out on the day that this news broke, defending it and batting away claims and calls and hopes for JobKeeper to be expanded, saying that that wasn't going to happen. That's why people don't trust politicians. So this is the classic sort of eat the cho- eat the shit sandwich, and um, you know. <laughs> but at least it, don't go out in public, don't you reckon? Like if that was me, I get it. He's the assistant treasurer. It's the treasurer and the prime minister. It's more senior, you know, chickens in the coop that are making these decisions than him. But at least turn around and say to them, mate, I'm not doing media for a week. I'm just going to sit here in the corner in the fetal position. No, while come you guys on. Defend this. No, let him. It's embarrassing. It's so yeah, ridiculous. but look, if you if you're going to be caught out, credit on him for for getting up there. But it does show the absurdity <laughs> of it that 
with, with what appears to be one set of rock solid numbers, you make one argument. And then when the numbers turn out to be the exact, exactly where you said that you would be in a position to take a different view, you now say, well, we're in that position, but I'm not going to take a different view. Um, <laughs> It is absurd. It is absurd. Now, you and I would perhaps be having a very different conversation if today you said to me, Michael, there's only 3 million employees who are covered. It was half what we expected. In that case, I'd be saying to you, yeah, look, there's more of a likelihood of wholesale changes. That actually is exactly what ended up happening. And then Michael Suka stood there in his follow-up interview saying, oh, no, 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 we can't expand it. No, that's not something that we're considering. I mean, oh, my yeah, God. So, so, I mean, it's a, all of this is all of this rates high on the gotcha moments. And by the way, if there's background noise, it's because uh, I'm spending some of my $60 billion in getting my uh, water heater system replaced. And I've got a couple of fine gentlemen in the back there putting the water heater system in. And, Let um, me give the same disclaimer, Hugh. I'm not having a water system in, but but one of my children has nicked off with my headset that I've normally got on when we're recording this. So I've got you on loudspeaker and I'm sitting here in my room. I, I don't know about you. I, I've got one part of the house that is mine and it's my bedside table. Um, yeah. And that's the one thing that I have complete control over. Everything else, out, for me. E- everything, yeah. out of, everything else is out of my jurisdiction. But uh, even leaving my headset, on my bedside table it, they've nicked off with it so i couldn't find it so i've got the jackhammer in the background no fridge being moved but or cooling system heating system but background noise potentially as well i can hear the jackhammer working away on that bloody swimming pool now now and this is the time you tell you remind your children that uh, 230 odd years ago uh, children who nicked um uh ipod uh headsets <laughs> Uh, because they did, in, they did indeed exist 230 years ago. Would have been uh, packed on the ship to Botany Bay with a good lashing to go with it. Now, now getting back to the subject at hand, PVO. So we've mm. now got $60 billion budgeted for, but not spent and not to be spent. And so, as you would expect, uh, given that we've spoken in the past about anomalies that are built into the system, Labor has turned up and said, well, here's an opportunity to capture and uh, give that stimulus and support to people who are completely missing out. And the people that they nominate as priorities are people working in the university sector who are exempted, foreign visa holders, and casual workers with less than 12 months service with a single employer. And and as we know, many of those are existing in the arts uh, who've been cut off and uh, and also in hospitality and some of those more tenuous areas of, of work. One thing that strikes, and, and, and we know Scott Morrison saying, no, that's not happening. So one thing that strikes me about each of those groups is that I, I wonder, I'd like your view on this, as to whether the government has cut them out for the simple reason that, let's have a look at it, you know, foreigners on, on visas, well, they don't, don't vote. vote. Uh, people in the university sector, notorious for voting for all kinds of radical mobs like the Greens and Labour don't tend to Bunch be Bunch of bloody lefties, Hugh. I think that's what you're trying to say. Absolutely. People in the arts sector, <laughs> not normally on the hard right of the uh, of the coalition, and uh, and those casual, young casual workers tend not to be. Could it be possible that these people are being financially punished in a very, very real way and cut out and not being allowed back in with the $60 billion that is free? Could it be possible that, that we would have a government that would make decisions about their well-being purely on the likelihood that they would vote for the coalition? Hugh, I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. You're, you. Are you actually suggesting that this government, that politicians 
might make decisions about economic well-being and the 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 livelihoods of people what based on on votes and politics and constituencies no i mean there is no way a government that for example presided over i don't know sports rorts would ever mm. conceivably do something like that I, I i i can't believe you would stoop so low so the taxpayer money that was directed <laughs> for purely political purposes and sports rorts set a oh. pattern uh, I mean, this is a serious question. For, for but behind behind your your reasonable uh, s- uh, satire and mockery lies a very very serious question because it goes to something which is very fundamental. I'm not saying because it's it's not for me to say. And who am I? I'm a mere hack. But do you think that these people have been excluded mm. because they are less likely to vote for the coalition? Okay, let, let me let me put it this way. Uh, I'm not certain that they were excluded by design as opposed to happenstance initially. So, for example, the casuals with less than 12 months employment, that's one of the reasons why it hits the arts and entertainment sector so heavily. They're not actually formally excluded arts and entertainment. You know, if you're in a full-time job or if you'd been in a casual position uh, over 12 months, uh, part-time and what have you, they would have as much access to JobKeeper as the next person. I think Matthias Corman tried to make this point uh, with Fran Kelly on the ABC. But just the fact is that the arts and entertainment sector tends to operate in a different way to that, uh, with the way that you know people engaged in it have short-term contracts in different positions and they therefore fall between the cracks. Now, I don't think that was by design with the government looking at them and saying, well, they're a bunch of lefties, so who cares? Uh, universities equally, initially, I don't think it was by design. I think that they just took a, a public policy view, rightly or wrongly, I say wrongly, uh, that universities are on their own because they're already receiving you know, a publicly funded structure through the nature of how universities are carved up and they've done a separate carve out for them. Now, where I get more cynical all the joking and satire aside, is when it then comes to correcting the mistake made. If they'd made a similar mistake, for example, in relation to farmers, and they had missed out, a core constituency of both coalition parties, but particularly the National Party, or small business people, if we could be you know, more definitive about that, and My they business. had missed out, I think that they would, yeah, the, the mining sector, uh, then I think they would remedy the mistake swiftly and happily eat the humble pie to fix it and fix it fast as the lobbying uh, and the special interest groups uh, came down on them like a ton of bricks. But because it is the university sector, which they don't have a great deal of love for, and because it is arts and entertainment, which they don't also have a great deal of love for, and there is a perception, if not reality, uh, and, and often it is more perception than reality, but it is at least perception in large cohorts of the conservative side of politics that the unis are out to get them and all the rest of it. Therefore, they think, you know what? It's been designed this way. We lose political, we take political hits and it costs us more money. If we change it, you can get stuffed. I really do think that's where they do have that level of thought process. So it's not a a calculated call, but it is a consequence of prejudices that sit there. And can I just very quickly say this, Hugh? That is actually the wrong way to view. I know we have to go to a break in a moment, but that is the wrong way to view the university sector because there are sections of particularly arts faculties that are perhaps more left wing than not. But 
business schools, science faculties, engineering departments. These are the lifeblood of universities. Frankly, if anything, arts and humanities has been in long-term decline as, it's, as a significant factor within a university writ large for a very long period of time now. But they just have, you hear them vocally, politically, and the government therefore just says, ipso facto, unis are a bunch of left-wing, green-haired, uh, you know, nose ring types from arts faculties uh, teaching philosophy and whatever. In actuality, universities are quite conservative places writ large, particularly across the administration and amongst some of those more conservative style faculties uh, that, that are not what the government has the perception of them as, which is politically stoked left-wing ideologues. So, uh, But regardless know, I, of whether do... they're left-wing, right-wing, it's an equity question, isn't it? It is all taxpayers' money. Uh, should it should it be remedied? Well, I think it should. Yeah, I, I think it was. I, I was pointing this out before we saw the sixty billion dollar gaping hole in the way that they'd structured this. I thought that they should have gone above the one thirty billion to cover a lot of these groupings. You know what the biggest problem? We might talk about this after the break, Hugh. But the biggest problem with not so much with universities, but with the casuals who missed out the one point one, one point two million employees who were casuals with less than twelve months of continuous employment at the one place. The problem with now trying to extend it to them, which is what Labor wants to do, is that they've already lost their jobs. You know, they've already been moved on. It's, it's, it's like trying to unscramble an egg because you can't backfill JobKeeper when they've already left the employment. So that, I think, is part of the dilemma, at least for that grouping. But that doesn't apply to universities because they're currently planning their redundancies to try to cover the costs of lost international students and closed borders and so on. Let's take a quick break. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about this as we, as we dig down to what mm. the choices are. So uh, we'll take a break right now, Peter, and uh, be back in just a moment. Stay with us. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. This is episode 54 of The Professor and the Hack, and we're going through the implications of this uh, $60 billion that's just been saved or found or whatever it is uh, as a result back of, of the this, couch, uh, counting you. stuff. Back of the couch, down the back of the couch, along with the old bus tickets. So um, in a serious sense, what is the proper way? I, I've always said, I've made the argument, I'm fiscally conservative. Don't spend money if you don't absolutely have to spend mm. money. Um, what do you think quite apart from what they should do. What do you think now uh, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg will do as they, they wipe the egg from their face, uh, and, but then look at this as, a, as essentially uh, much better news than they would have expected to have found? What are they going to do with it? Well, I, look, I, I think they will make changes, um, but they'll do two things. One, they'll make those changes in very targeted industries where they think they really need to make the adjustments and there are adjustments to people who are already perhaps receiving JobKeeper, but they just extend the life of it, for example. You know, the tourism sector, for example, in particular, uh, sectors that are heavily directly impinged on by international travel restrictions, which are likely to last longer than, than any other. Um, so so I'm going to just, sure. So I'm just going to hold you there for a second, because this is really mm. important. What we're seeing is essentially and we have seen this in recent weeks, that that idea that there was going to be a snapback, which was the original phrase by Scott Morrison, is unlikely to happen. It's not going to be a nice, neat sort of thing of, oh, gee, we've fallen into, into a hole. It'll last for a neat six months. We've set up a structure that'll keep us across the six months. And then what do you know, perfectly timed, everything was going to jump back up again. Now, now that, that's plainly 
um, looked optimistic in a global sense as the global death toll continues to gallop, gallop along. And yet mm. at the same time, it does give an opportunity, doesn't it, for us to see and understand better as we get more information about this pandemic, that Australia, as it did with the GFC, largely dodged a bullet. We have, through early responses, largely dodged a bullet, so long as the borders are kept tight. Um, but there will be, as a consequence of that, sections, perhaps universities might be one area, but also, uh, obviously, in tourism, international tourism is going to be down for some time, one presumes, that mm. this would be a sensible way for the government to go about this with this money is to, they talk about tapering, but allow support for people working in those sectors into a longer future. And that would be a reasonable thing for the government to do. Yeah, and I, and I think that is what they'll do because they, they, they do always have their little caveat on this, which is that they always said come June, there would be a look at and a potential redrafting of sections of JobKeeper. And then, of course, they have those two sitting weeks in the middle of June before ha July is off. And then Parliament's actually back for all of August. And they would need potentially some legislative adjustments to it, uh, although they might be able to do some of the changes via regulations, particularly now that they've got more money up their sleeve, which they didn't know they had until recently. But certainly that's their moment in time to be able to say, here are some changes which we always said could be on the cards come June, uh, and we're going to legislate them now as quickly as possible and get it done. But what they won't do in that process is tie those changes to the fact that they now have the $60 billion up their sleeve in the wake of the error and tie those changes to what Labor is calling for. And that's just politics, isn't it? You know, that's them wanting to be seen to be in charge and making adjustments as planned, moving with the flow of the crisis as changes are required, but not pandering to demands from the opposition, nor fixing up stuff-ups of their own because of previous miscalculations. They, they don't want that to be the perception for why changes are coming. So I think that's why they'll do it through that prison that they've set up for themselves come June. So do you get the sense, I mean, I, I dropped the kids off to school. We've made the decision to put the kids back into school again. We, we, we have vulnerabilities. We've discussed before because my wife has mm. very low immune, immune system as a result of going through chemotherapy, but we've decided the kids were very keen to go back to school. We dropped, I dropped them off this morning. And uh, one of the things I noticed was that the cafes were filled up again. And I saw a woman jumping into an Uber uh, just across the, across the way. Th those things which were such routine parts of the urban yeah. landscape, I suppose, uh, before all this began, and then just hasn't really been happening. And yet it's almost, I feel, as if there's, some, there's been a kind of a collective uh, sigh of relief with the, with the schools going back and uh, uh, you know, a sense that normal life can resume again with some of the fun things of normal life. I guess if we don't get a steep increase, and if our borders are tight, it seems we have a reasonable sense of what's going out in community transmissions. You know, what is your sense of this? Could we emerge out of this intact in a way that uh, the UK hasn't, the other European nations haven't, as the United States certainly hasn't, and other countries like Brazil, which looks disastrous at the moment, hasn't, that once again, the lucky country's luck has been in? Oh, yeah. I think not only can we emerge looking that way, but we really should uh, for the same reasons that the 1919 pandemic, which killed 50 million people worldwide, I think it only killed 6,000 Australians. Now, we were more isolated then 
than we are now with the nature of international commerce and travel and all the rest of it. But we got out of that one because of our isolation in no small part. Uh, the one in the 1950s, I think it was 54, which killed millions worldwide, but not quite tens of millions. Uh, again, we got out of that one as well because of our isolation. And we should get out of this one for the same reasons, frankly, uh, and because took off look i don't want to be completely uh, geographic about this because we made some good decisions early about shutting the border to china for example but we made a poor decision early waiting as long as we did to shut the border to the us and obviously yeah, then had the ruby princess disaster but our geographical isolation just like with new zealand um, coupled with good decision-making and early decision-making and learning from mistakes abroad when they were a few weeks ahead of us in terms of their pandemics and seeing what unfolded, all of that leads to us looking like we're going to weather this as long as a second wave doesn't take us down. And that's what should happen, frankly, uh, because we have the capacity in ways that other countries didn't and do not have to be able to isolate as a nation before self-isolating as citizens within the nation. And, and the hope is, we're not going to eradicate it, all the experts tell us, but we can, if you like, extinguish it sufficiently that with some changes to social distancing and some close monitoring, things like the app, even though the uptake hasn't been as high as it should be, you piece well, all well, of that it's together. funny you talk about the app. People don't, all the talk about the app being the critical element in all this, which came from the Prime Minister down, seems to have evaporated like a, like a, a spring mist you know we, we, <laughs> yeah, that, that was know. much more eloquently said i was going to say like a fart um in the air but you you put that much more eloquently than, than it was in my, I, I don't in live my in your head. elevated circles with, with such <laughs> languages uh, is uh, is allowed but um but it is funny isn't it that the app was going to be the thing that got us out of there and, and who's talking about the app these days no one's talking about the app and if you haven't downloaded it it's like no one's saying oh gee you're naughty you if you haven't downloaded it uh, it hasn't worked for most of that time. Um, it, it hasn't been functional. Um, I, I've got to say the app, which I never liked, um, I never trusted with this government, uh, you know, it, it, it seems to be less significant. It may become significant if we have another wave of infections, of course. But uh, right now, I'd say the app looked like another one of those things where they say, you know, you must do this for the good of the nation. And in fact, we really didn't. Yeah, but let's, let's be clear. I mean, the, the apps, the significance of the app is all about if a second wave strikes so that they can sort of come down on it uh, more effectively. But that's only if it was taken up to, I think the experts always said it had to be 80% as a take-up rate. The Prime Minister set the, the bar at 40% and we've landed at about 20% and it's stalled. And as you say, bloody thing doesn't even work properly anyway. Uh, there are so many bugs in the system. But this is what I was talking about at the time, remember? I, I came on board and accepted reluctantly, despite my many reservations, which mirrored a lot of your reservations. I came on board and said, you know what? They tell us it's so damn important. Fine. I'll say people should do it. I'll do it myself. Off we go. But this is what frustrates me about the lack of political leadership on this. They tell us it's so goddamn important, but then they're happy to just let it fade into obscurity and irrelevance when the take-up rate is as low as it is. You can't have both. It's either super important and they now have to be all over this and possibly considering it becoming compulsory and all the rest of it to get it to where it's supposed to be because, as they originally told us, it's so important. Or they have to acknowledge that it was never so bloody important in the first place and therefore uh, they were full of it and they were overstoking it, just like all the other things where their rhetoric is overstoked. Schools are safe. 
I can't be any clearer than that. Well, they might be safe enough to go back, but they're not safe. You can't say that. It's an overstatement. I think it's probably what's happened with this app as well. And to me, that just doesn't yeah, – that is what frustrates me, um, particularly about this prime minister, but about this government as well. They're so absolutist in their rhetoric. They tell us the app is absolutely necessary. It's vital. It's this, it's that. Well, if it's so bloody vital, when the take-up rate is so low, one quarter of what experts tell us it needs to be, why is it still not compulsory? Why are you not running hundreds of millions of dollars worth of ad campaigns to spike uh, the take-up rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Probably because the rhetoric queue in the first place was completely overcooked. Or they're politically weak and they're now risking us all come a second wave because they're not pushing hard enough. Mm. Um there is a broad, uh, this is a bit that actually really interested me more than anything, is that whenever there is something as big as this, the GFC was part of it, uh, but I think this is even more profound than that, is I think that we're in the process of seeing geopolitical change on a, you know, a generational level. Uh, mm. One thing Australia is going to see over the next little period, the expectation is, is that we'll have vastly reduced immigration which will have all kinds of flow and effects through even things like housing construction and so on, but also socially it'll have a, a, a difference. Um, there's also a lot of talk about being less reliant on China as being the key to our entire supply chain. Uh, so, you know, the argument that we need to be making more of the things that we feel are essential to us here in Australia. So that suggests that if, if we were to flow, if it, none of, nothing may come of this, but, if anything does come of it, what it suggests is that we'll be making more expensive things, whether it's face masks or other pharmaceuticals, for example, more expensive things here because we can't compete with China on cost, <clears throat> excuse me, with lower immigration, with the strongest sort of argument, a more nationalistic tone to the argument, it's Australian's first type of thing coming up. Do you see this coming that will be a, essentially a overall poorer, lower growth more nationalistic nation as we emerge out the other side? Yeah, I, I, I find this particularly scary. I actually wrote uh, my, my weekend column in the Oz on exactly that theme. I, I think that we're moving into an era of nationalism, uh, hyper-nationalism, uh, something that we haven't seen since uh, mid, well, early to mid-20th century, and we all saw the problems that that created. Uh, I also think um, that there will be that cultural limitation that we're going to see in communities as well as complete nation states because of the, the lost immigration. We, we forget that Australia's growth has been completely built on and predicated on high immigration levels. Uh, and whatever you thought about border protection policies during the Howard era, one of the tricks of what he did was that he managed to have that aura of tough border protection at the same time as having substantial immigration. And more recently, it's become even more substantial. Hundreds of thousands of people, new migrants coming to this country, very skilled often because of the visa program vis-a-vis -vis international student graduates from university. So it also fueled that export industry, which has been described as the second largest in our, in our country after the, the, the resources and mining sector. Um, all of that changes now. So the economic growth numbers predicated on just growing the pie population-wise and with it economically uh, goes, potentially, or a lot of it goes. Um, the, the skill level, therefore, of the overall workforce declines because they were highly skilled, these migrants, tertiary educated and all the rest of it. 
Uh, and then, as you say, the complexion of the communities changes as a result of it well, as well with what it does and doesn't do to multiculturalism, all in an era of hyper-nationalism uh, and wariness as well, social distancing and what that accentuates in some of the cultural impacts of this. I, I think it's a whole new epoch that we may well be going into, Hugh, and we're, we're going into the discussion on it with just minutes to go on our podcast. So we, I think we should devote our next one to this very issue, quite frankly, because I think it's such a fascinating area of change, uh, which is going to mark this pandemic as one of those moments in history, even if it didn't kill as many people in our country as it did in other parts of the world, or even if it killed only a fraction of people globally to what the 1919 pandemic did. The fallout and the changed way of life that comes from it is just going to be so utterly profound uh, that it'll be a marker in history they'll talk about for hundreds of years, I think. Yeah, a long tail to this one, just as there is a long tail to the debt that's being accumulated to try to deal with it. But I think it's it's not the debt, mm. it's this other social element, maybe the most interesting thing. And just quickly, before we go, look to Hong Kong. Because what we're seeing again with the Chinese through their central uh, political apparatus in Beijing announcing a national rubber stamping now, a national security law which extends to Hong Kong with a permanent uh, Beijing loyal security presence in Hong Kong uh, with the capacity there to crack down on any form of dissent. It shows once again that China is not to be trusted. It says one thing and it does another. To quote the great Tony Abbott, the basic law, which was the essential understanding, which went to the handover of Hong Kong from Britain back to China, was based on there being 50 years of freedoms existing within Hong Kong before uh, it was absorbed back into China. That is now being ignored. We've seen it before with the uh, the disputed islands, the reefs that they've built up. They said they'd never yep. militarized them. They have militarized them. China is, it must be said clear and loud, absolutely not to be trusted. It is no longer a, an illusion that we can sustain that China is a, is a mob that says what, that does what they say they will do. Hong Kong is the evidence of it. Keep watching Hong Kong because it has direct implications yeah. uh, for us and our relationship with our biggest yeah. partner. Hong Kong, as we've known it in our lifetimes, uh, is likely to be no more in short shrift time. Uh, and I've, I've, I've always had issues with US reach and soft power and its foreign diplomacy, as well as uh, its use of hard power. But, you know, it is nonetheless, despite all of its mistakes, still a democracy. China is not. You know, China is an authoritarian dictatorship uh, and its spreading sphere of influence and the way it conducts itself in the bullying ways are therefore all the more menacing because it doesn't fall within the ambit of democracy. True enough. And as a former resident of Hong Kong, I love the place. Um, I know people there are extremely nervous, uh, more nervous than ever with this. Uh, that, that we will also watch over the months ahead. Peter Van Onselen, we're out of time. Uh, great talking to you, Prof. Um, Likewise. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk again later this week and, and talk a bit more about the kind of Australia that's likely to emerge. And thank you for listening, loyal listener. <laughs> Until soon. Stay well. See ya. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.
Hi, this is Stu from 10 Speaks. While you are shut in staring at the wall, why not listen to some of our great 10 Speaks podcasts? Or at least stare at our great TV shows on 10. We have Short Black with Sandra Sully, Starstruck with Angela Bishop, The Professor and the Hack, Australian Survivor Talking Tribal. Man, we need some shows with some shorter titles. Find these and the rest of our 10 Speaks shows on the Acast app or wherever you get your potties.